In the months March, April and May of 2020, countries around the world imposed some of the strictest mass limitations on individual freedom in recent history. The mass confinements, known colloquially as lockdowns, were an attempt to halt the transmission of the rapidly spreading novel coronavirus, COVID-19. For the first time in modern history, a true pandemic had wrapped around the globe. But also for the first time, modern medicine and modern technology was to be tested against contagion. Contact tracing, epidemiological modelling and vaccination research were already underway, with support from nearly every national and international medical research body. The scientific apparatus of the planet bent towards the new threat, but it needed time to be effective. So, enforced population confinement and restrictions on movement were necessary. Factories were closed, cities deserted, and planes grounded. And we started to notice something else. Another change to something that we were already highly sensitive to and had been worried about for a long time. The stalled global economy resulted in reduced carbon emissions. According to a paper by Karine Lequerre et al. in the May 2020 issue of Nature Climate Change, daily global CO2 emissions decreased by 17% in April 2020 versus the previous year. At the absolute peak, emissions in individual countries decreased by 26% on average. Air travel was one of the worst sectors affected, and during those three months, March, April and May of 2020, daily air traffic was down 75%. And according to the Global Carbon Project, this corresponded to a 60% decline in emissions from aviation. Aviation normally contributes somewhere between 2.5 and 3% of all man-made greenhouse gas emissions. It sounds small, but when you think about the estimated 26% of emissions that come from all agricultural efforts planet-wide, the outsize impact of aviation becomes clear. But the pandemic is not the way we want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The effects were too temporary and too costly. The UK government alone expects to spend close to 400 billion on efforts to contain COVID-19 and alleviate the burden on individuals and the economy. Crashing the global economy is a poor response to any crisis. And in any case, the world is opening up again. A year on from the height of lockdown, the International Air Transport Association data shows air cargo demand in April 2021 outperforms even April 2019 by 12%. And although revenue passenger kilometres, which is a metric to measure passenger demand, in April was still down 65.4%, it was growing 3% month on month. The world had begun to move again. The biggest ever demand-side impact on aviation failed to solve its carbon problem. As we take to the skies again to see family, travel for work, and build ties across the blue marble, many of us can't help but wonder about the future of air travel, that essential tether that binds our economy and our global community together.
Hello, and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode, we are looking at an innovation that might help conventional aviation become more sustainable. It requires no changes in behaviour, no newly designed aircraft engines, and no exotic hydrogen-based systems. It is a creation of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Colorado, which is itself part of the US Department of Energy. And for the last few years, one of its most promising projects has been to look at satisfying the growing demand for sustainable aviation fuels. To meet this demand, a team has been working on a process that they say converts wet waste carbon to meet jet fuel specifications. Which is an elegantly academic way of saying that they've been taking slaughterhouse waste, dairy waste, some really nasty byproducts from industrial food processing that would otherwise rot in landfill and release enormous amounts of methane into the atmosphere. And they have repurposed it as aviation fuel. This is then blended with existing fuels in ever-improving ratios. In diverting that waste with the latest breakthroughs, the team is already claiming a net zero carbon footprint and they plan to push it even further. But first, we need to meet one of the people behind the chemistry. His name is Derek Varden, and his journey begins with joining the Navy straight out of high school. And enlisted as a sailor for their nuclear power program. And at the time, but yeah, believe it or not, I wasn't that big into science and engineering. I'd grown up during, during high school, um, but thought I would uh, join and, and you know use that as an opportunity to expand my horizons and get out of my hometown for a bit and, and see the world. The program was a revelation for Derek as it split theoretical learning in the classroom with hands-on experience in a training submarine powered by a full nuclear reactor. And learning how, how this whole engineering system works, which was just for me to actually like connect it with something I could have my hands on and like that immediate feedback from what you'd be learning in the classroom was really game changing for me and got me, you know, really hooked into the, I mean, what a nuclear reactor can do in terms of energy is just this mind blowing phenomena. After six years in the Navy with a strong energy background and hooked on engineering, Derek went to study environmental engineering. Although at that time biofuels existed, they were not as mature or relevant to technology as they now have the potential to be. So I got involved with a lot of research focusing on algae for wastewater treatment, and soon that turned into algae for biofuels, and spent my, my research career really focusing on that waste and energy and environmental impact intersection. Then, with his degrees completed and his PhD in progress, Derek decided to spread his wings. And so I called, emailed researchers at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory where I work at now, and just said, hey, I'm, I'm out really interested in renewable biofuels. My thesis is in this topic. And um, would you be willing to host an intern for a summer? And, <laughs> and luckily, they actually replied to my email um, and, and, uh, and said yes, they, they would. That was in 2013, and he has been at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory ever since. 
which he says is a lesson for young engineers just starting out. Don't underestimate the cold email. Yeah. <laughs> the lab itself had aims beyond pure science and research. It was beginning to look at how to connect with industry, to make projects more tangible, and hopefully to change the world. The US Department of Energy has been looking at converting food waste biomass into fuels for over five years. And that's where we will begin. Because the food waste problem is very real. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, an estimated one-third of all food produced for human consumption in the world goes to waste. That's about 1.3 billion tonnes per year. The waste occurs all through the supply chain, from the farm itself all the way to the household. It represents enough calories to potentially feed every undernourished person on the planet, and target 12.3 of the Sustainable Development Goals calls for halving global food waste at retail and consumer levels by 2030. But even if we set aside the humanitarian ethics of the situation, there is an environmental cost to this. Of the 26% of human greenhouse gas emissions that come from agriculture, about 24% comes from food waste. That's 6% of all human greenhouse gas emissions resulting from food loss and waste. Methane is many times more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, most estimates putting it at 20 to 30 times worse, and so this results in more than twice the emissions generated by aviation. And so Derek? The NREL, the US Department of Energy, all knew that this was a wasted fuel source that could no longer be ignored. And so in this project, we actually looked at, when you look at the biological process that's taking place, you can actually stop before methane. And so these microorganisms are doing just what we do as humans. They're chewing on the carbohydrates that are in food waste. There's a lot of protein a lot of fats and lipids. The biological web at work. And so this technology uses a, a mixture of naturally occurring microorganisms. And instead of making methane, it produces what they're called as volatile fatty acids. So they're just these short chain carboxylic acids that are products from fermentation. And we've been working, there's research going on in the National Laboratory System, but we've also been working with industry partners um, that have moved the technology forward into the demonstration and piloting scale to be able to take food waste and other wet waste resources and ferment and separate these short-chain carboxylic acids. It's a bit of a joke they have in the laboratory, as these volatile fatty acids are not actually that volatile, they're fairly stable and liquid at room temperature. But they smell. <laughs> they smell really bad. And again, I think, it's, I think as human beings, we've evolved to, to smell decomposing food. So, so we, we're highly tuned to pick up on, on the, these odor compounds. But we received this liquid uh, volatile fatty acid solution. And our work primarily in my team has been focusing on how to catalytically then, with non-living chemistry, use a solid catalyst very similar to the catalyst that's in your automobile tailpipe 
that can convert your engine gases and oxidize those. The process developed at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory turns these volatile fatty acids into finished jet fuel. And a lot of the effort goes into trying to understand how to tune and tailor the chemistry to take the short molecules and make them longer, as well as removing oxygen from them to make sure they are compatible with existing jet engines. And to meet all the specifications required for certified jet fuel, which are rigorous. In our team, we've been developing essentially catalysts for two main chemical transformations. The first one is called a, a ketonization catalyst, and it takes two volatile fatty acids and actually turns them into one molecule. And so what's neat about the chemistry is you can actually stitch together molecules that are small and make them in the appropriate boiling point range for a jet fuel. Over the last five years, in consortium with other research organizations, they've been looking to tune and tailor the catalysts and reaction conditions to turn as many carbon molecules as possible into these elongated ketones. Making this first chemical transformation as efficient as possible. You really know the chemistry is working because these volatile fatty acids um, are these highly odorous, very stinky molecules, but then the ketones that, that form when they're coupled together are nice, sweet smelling, and actually quite pleasant. So I, I, I don't recommend using your nose as a chemical detection system, but it is highly, it has highly evolved to tell the difference between these two classes of chemical compounds. So in goes stinky and, and out this catalyst reactor tube come, comes a nice, more pleasant smelling liquid. The organic ketone liquid is separated from and sits on top of the water that is left over from this process. And once that uh, longer carbon backbone is formed, the final catalytic step we work on is then how do you remove oxygen fully and add hydrogen so that the fuel now is comprised fully of just carbon and hydrogen. In other words, a highly energy-dense liquid hydrocarbon fuel. We do a lot of work working with industrial catalysts that are already made to do this chemistry. So there's a lot of work that's been taking place in the sustainable aviation fuel space around taking waste, fats, oils, and greases and removing oxygen fully and turning those into finished hydrocarbon jet fuels. And so we've been trying to look at ways that we can do the same thing with these ketone molecules we're making so that ideally we're, we're developing technology that can just integrate with a lot of the refinery operations that are already out there for existing emerging jet fuel and, and renewable diesel fuel processes. After that, they send a sample off to the University of Dayton's Research Institute to analyze the fuel properties of the hydrocarbon solution. Various properties are looked at, such as the fuel volatility, viscosity, energy density, but also things like the flammability and the flashpoint. The flashpoint is the lowest temperature at which a liquid, usually a petroleum product, will form a vapour in the air near its surface that will flash or briefly ignite on exposure to an open flame. 
The flashpoint is generally an indication of the flammability or combustibility of a liquid. And then we take that and then go back to the first step of the actual fermentation itself and try to understand how we can tweak the process, tailor the chemistry or modify the biology to really get more carbon into the desirable range of jet fuel products that we're trying to make. For this project in particular, the initial target was to achieve a liquid that could be blended in with a fossil jet fuel at a 10% level and still meet all of the fuel property specifications that were set out by ASTM International. ASTM International is the governing body that helps develop the metrics for qualifying a fuel and saying that if it meets them, there'll be no difference between a sustainable aviation fuel and a fossil-derived aviation fuel. Very quickly though, we were able to meet that goal and, and then we'd say, okay, well, how high can do you increase the renewable content? Because ideally, right now, the industry standard that's certified and qualified where you could fly it in a commercial airplane, they have set the limit at 50% could be renewable. But in the last few months, Derek and the team claim to have been able to push that even further. And so in our recent work, we've been able to push that envelope up to a 70% plus blend and still meet all the fuel parameters. Calculating the impact of this on the greenhouse gas emissions is a fiendishly complex discipline involving life cycle and sustainability analysis that is constantly being updated. Regarding the process itself, they need to consider the chemicals used to produce the sustainable aviation fuel, what utilities are required, and how the electricity itself used to run a heater or a pump was produced, how green the energy grid is in the US. Then the original feedstock needs to be taken into account, how it's typically produced and handled. Perhaps different feedstock was used at different times, and for this, the US Environmental Protection Agency developed standardised frameworks allowing you to compare various types of waste. Does the landfill the waste was bound for have methane capture and combustion technology? That needs to be taken into account for any of these measurements. But taking all that into account, and after double-checking and triple-checking with the EPA... What we were really blown away with for looking at food waste as a feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel production is, is how significant the carbon intensity reduction can be if you are diverting and not making methane in a landfill with it. So in full disclaimer, there's a lot of debate and controversy within the scientific community on looking at diverting and not making methane, so avoided emissions versus just emission reductions, if you will. And so for looking at food waste as a feedstock, when we're able to turn that into sustainable aviation fuel, we're able to get actually a negative carbon footprint because of how significant methane is as a greenhouse gas relative to carbon dioxide. And so we baselined this overall process and estimated a 150% reduction in the carbon intensity footprint of just our sustainable aviation fuel. 
made from food waste. And so when we're able to look at the blend limit of uh, 70%, you would actually have a negative footprint from the bio-based content. And then even though 30% of the fuel was still fossil, the math behind it, they would actually offset one another. So you could get to a carbon zero based footprint for a blended fuel that had a mixture of both fossil and bio-based. Derek says that this isn't to say that we can just burn this fuel and solve all of our environmental woes. The best way to offset any type of uh, environmental impact is to reduce, reuse, recycle. You know, don't, I, I'm not trying to, or I am trying to always advocate for uh, the easiest way to make a, a improve our impact on the environment is to reduce our impact on the environment. But at least when we're looking at the overall life cycle analysis of this pathway from food waste, it is, I think, promising of how you can try to engineer carbon flows within systems to make better use of that carbon and prevent more of it from going into the high impact greenhouse gas emissions and still trying to meet that societal need of energy for transportation. The future of sustainable aviation fuel is partly in the chemistry and partly in the quantity. On this project in particular, we've been fortunate enough to get selected for a Department of Energy grant to scale the technology up from the leaders we've been making in the laboratory to now hundreds of leaders uh, to be able to help get the volume of fuel required to actually go through the rigorous ASTM testing and qualification process. So the goal from autumn to spring is to start making barrel quantities of this fuel. And uh, I can't believe it's already going to be uh, 2022 next year. But enter into the um, ASTM testing process, ideally early next year, so that we can be on the the way to qualifying the fuel. Once the fuel is certified, any institution could use it and benefit from it, as long as they're capable of meeting the chemical and process requirements. If we are successful, the, the end capstone demonstration we have for the project is to actually blend the qualified fuel and do a flight demonstration. And so if we could put a plane in the sky on food waste in the next three years, I'd say that that's definitely our goal. But like any good researcher, Derek has his eyes on an even loftier prize. But long term, and I say long term with it um, not being that far off, there's a strong interest in going all the way to 100% biofuel blends of sustainable aviation fuel so that in concept, or at least when looking at the overall life cycle analysis of how you can make a sustainable aviation fuel, ideally you could be doing it in a manner where your overall carbon intensity of, of when starting from a feedstock and going all the way to finished fuel, you could be achieving a, a net zero carbon footprint if you were to really take into account all of the different process inputs and, and where you would be getting your carbon from. And so um, we've been continuously trying to push the boundary of how much 
sustainable aviation fuel you can get into and meet all of the fuel property specifications so that we could get towards a 100% blend. Historically, biofuel researchers might have been working with one waste source, for example, waste vegetable oil. It will be processed in a specific way to turn it into a very specific aviation fuel with a certain chemical structure. And the maximum amount that's been approved in the past is a 50% mix. But what is really exciting from a research standpoint is that loads of different kinds of feedstocks and different chemistry is all being used to make fuel. And looking at how these hydrocarbons are structured has allowed for synergies that improve properties, such as the flashpoint and the viscosity, to increase the renewable blend limit of their mix to 70%. And so doing that, we're always, you know, going back to that fuel molecule design toolbox, because we can't do that with just one type of fuel molecule. We need to have the diversity of chemical structures that you'd, you'd find in fossil fuel. Derek says he loves it when people ask how far can the chemistry take us, because he says there's an inherent tension in the question. Two of the metrics we've been looking at is how do you meet the near-term win of a 10% and a 50% blend, and then how do you push beyond that to try to get to towards the 100%. And there's been some really exciting work in the aviation industry where they're even doing now engine tests on 100% sustainable aviation fuels to show that that it's not it's not something that is outside the realm of possibility and more just of a, a technical challenge to get that more closer towards scale up and more widely implemented in terms of the technology as well as the standards required for, for certifying the, these 100% aviation fuels that are bio-based. The climate crisis will not be solved by one silver bullet technology, nor will it be solved by shutting down society. If it is to be solved, it will be achieved with a vast array of technological improvements and societal changes, all interacting. Efforts to find ways to make use of the waste of one sector for essential activity in another will form a critical part of a cleaner, greener future. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own sustainable jet fuel is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thank you.